This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com. An Economy of One.com, as is our Facebook an economy of one on Facebook. Joining me a little bit later is Melissa Quinn. She's a senior news reporter for the Daily Signal, part of the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk to her about people showing up in uh, her lobby protesting, I guess, essentially just protesting ideas. Uh, that's all they got. So we'll talk to her in a little bit. I guess one of the the big economic news this week was uh, Puerto Rico, a territory of the United States, declaring bankruptcy. Finally, Puerto Rico has been dangling in the wind for quite a while, and uh, now they finally declared bankruptcy. Couldn't pay its debts. And I wanted to look at this not because I I want to... uh, you know, revel in the fact that they finally declared bankruptcy or, or anything like that. But it's a, it's a microcosm somewhat of the United States and certainly a microcosm of some of the states in the United States. Has some characteristics there. But first, the thing to look at, there's a lot of people in this country, a lot of individuals, a lot of institutions that bought, invested in Puerto Rican bonds and some of them municipal bonds. And that's going to create an interesting fight. About a year ago or so, an oversight board was uh, put together to try and fix some of their problems so they didn't default on their bonds. They, they have public sector debts of about $74 billion dollars. Uh, that's a hundred percent of their GDP. Some of the other aspects of Puerto Rico, they have about sixty percent unemployment. Now that includes people that refuse to work. So I, I don't know if you consider them unemployed or just rebellious. I don't know what the term is there. And fifty percent of the population is on Medicaid. It's really a poor country, and they got a lot of issues there. A lot of the business has been pulling out of Puerto Rico. And the interesting thing, the to me, one of the observations that we need to make note of here is that just like the states, people in Puerto Rico are voting with their feet, meaning because they're an American territory, essentially people who are born and raised or live in Puerto Rico are American citizens. So they're allowed to come into the United States anytime. They're American citizens. They can come move here and not be subject to Puerto Rican taxes and that kind of stuff. So that's what's happening. The people who could pay taxes are leaving because the people in charge there, as they've gotten into uh, more and more financial distress, have decided, uh, I'm not going to sit here and have my taxes raised every other month or every year or whatever, and be part of a declining 
economy a declining market. So they have pulled up their stakes and moved to the mainland, moved to the United States and taken their income with them and their their tax paying uh, with them. So if they were a state, if they were a 51st state, the options would have been different. They could essentially had their public utilities declare bankruptcy and not be in such dire straits. As it is, one of the arguments that's going to be out there, one of the battles we're going to see is who gets paid first? Which bondholders get paid first? And naturally, everybody thinks they should be first in line. There are some secured bondholders. There's some unsecured bondholders. But everybody thinks they should be paid first. And it's probably going to end up in the court system, which, from my experience, when things like this end up in the court system, nobody gets their money. Certainly nobody gets all of their money. Now, Puerto Rico has lost about 20% of its jobs since 2007 and, ready, 10% of its population. Now, ten who, who's going to leave? Who's going to leave? The unemployed people on Medicaid or the people that make money, have income, and don't want to pay all the taxes? Who's going to leave? People who make money. So what's happening is the percentages of their population that are unemployed, on Medicaid, not paying taxes, is becoming a larger percentage of the population. Now, what's the solution? The solution, first of all, is they got to cut spending. I think that they felt that the United States was going to bail them out no matter what they did. So they had big promises to people with pensions, spent a lot of money, didn't worry about paying things back, and now they got problems. So what happens next? The U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, he'll appoint a judge, likely a U.S. District Court judge, to oversee Puerto Rico. Now, this is a essentially a municipal bankruptcy, but it's different than the normal Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy we have here, like Detroit had. The person appointed here will have significant power over how things unfold. So it's a debt-cutting process, and uh, there really isn't a lot of legal precedent that uh, will tie the judge's hands. But they'll put together this judge and an oversight board, and the oversight board will aim to negotiate debt cuts with creditors. Generally speaking, in these kind of situations, my experience has been they always go for 50 cents on the dollar. They try to negotiate 50 cents in the dollar. The investors that invested in Puerto Rican bonds, they're not going to have a good day. They're going to have some problems. 
and they, the creditors will argue on both sides. If they hold secured bonds, eh, they might get paid, but the unsecured bondholders will get significant cuts. And in addition to that, the creditors are going to say they bet on Puerto Rican bonds that were exempt from federal, state, and local taxes that their investments were made when the island was not eligible for bankruptcy, so it doesn't apply to them. But a while back, Congress passed the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. Man, that's a mouthful, PROMISA. Specifically to create a process that allows the island's debt-saddled government entities to get debt relief. So each one of the governmental entities included in this bankruptcy filing have different investors, different creditors, and they all want to be paid. So we're going to set some new precedent here. They don't really know how one creditor stacks up against another, but we're going to find out. As far as the pensioners go, they're going to get some serious cuts. Because Puerto Rico has run out of pension funds. Will they be able to sell off assets? Uh, maybe. You know, they got a lot of beachfront properties, probably valuable to somebody. But it's uncertain whether they'll be able to sell off assets in order to pay their debts. So the legislation, the PROMISA legislation that was passed dictates that the court may not interfere with the island's property or revenues without the oversight board's consent. So you got to get a lot of people on board in order for them to be able to sell off their assets. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because I think it could be a microcosm. It could be a microcosm of the United States, although I don't think so. But more likely, it's a microcosm of individual states in this country. You, you can see, I mean, Puerto Rico, although it's not a state, we can look at it like one and look at it from the standpoint of it's not dissimilar to a state. One of the states that probably similar, more similar to Puerto Rico than anybody will admit in that state is Connecticut. And Connecticut gives us some important economics 101 lessons that I think it's important we look at. So up next, we'll take a look at Connecticut and see the similarities, if there are some, to Puerto Rico. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. May not seem like it on the surface, but Puerto Rico and Connecticut 
experiencing a lot of similarities right now. Now, I don't think Connecticut is going to go bankrupt by any means or any stretch of the imagination, but it's interesting to look at what's happening in Connecticut and what the people in charge are thinking. Now, the state has a $2.2 billion deficit in their annual budget, mainly due to, well, two things. One, increased spending, of course, and two, lower revenues, lower money coming into the state. And they keep raising taxes, income taxes, and they're raising less revenue. The Laffer Curve, exactly what happens. The Connecticut governor, Daniel Malloy, he admitted that taxing the rich does not work. The state has witnessed two high-end tax hikes in the last six years. So what's happening? You raise taxes on an individual, what are they going to do? They're either going to pay the tax or they're not going to pay the tax. In Connecticut, they're voting with their feet. Just like Puerto Rico. People in Puerto Rico, rather than pay the tax, they move to the mainland. Connecticut? Connecticut is one of the richest per capita states we have. Greenwich, Connecticut is rich. I mean, you drive into town, you can smell the money. But the state has become too dependent on these wealthy people. And wealthy people are leaving. And the ones that are staying make a lot less money than the ones that left. So Connecticut is experiencing exactly what we conservatives talk about. Raising taxes on the rich, you get less money. So, what do you do about it? Well, you cut spending, just like Puerto Rico, and you lower taxes. Connecticut is a highly blue state, so I don't see either of those things happening. And they are so dependent on taxing the income of the wealthy that all it takes is a few, not a lot, a few of these high-income individuals to leave, and it affects the revenue of the state tremendously. They first projected 2018 of having a deficit of $1.7 billion. Now it's $2.2 billion, and it's just a few people that have left. It's not like all the rich left. It's just a few. So Connecticut, very similar to Puerto Rico. Now, the difference is Connecticut isn't going to file for bankruptcy. They may figure out how to get a bunch of money from the federal government so you and I pay for their issues. I don't know. 
but the governor's called for an immediate hiring freeze. Where was this before? And a review of all current spending. Well, that statement alone tells you that these people are not fiscally responsible. You look at your spending before you spend it. You don't hire people without knowing what those costs are and whether you have the money. The income tax paid by Connecticut's top 100 taxpayers fell by 45% year over year. 45% from their top 100. That tells you that probably about 50 of last year's top 100, probably gone, probably left the state. Why not? Move to Florida. They don't have any state income tax. A couple of the major hedge fund guys in Greenwich pulled up stakes and went to Florida for one reason, taxes. Taxes. That's the only reason. Connecticut's a beautiful state. I love driving around Connecticut. There's the the scenery, everything is just beautiful, beautiful. It's historic, great little towns. But if they're going to rape you on taxes, people are going to leave, just like Puerto Rico. Coming up next, Melissa Quinn, senior news reporter for The Daily Signal is going to be joining me. We're going to talk about those protesters showing up in her lobby. Can't wait to talk to her about that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Melissa Quinn. She's a senior news reporter for The Daily Signal, covering health care, over-criminalization, and economic issues. She's a founding member of The Daily Signal news team, joining the Heritage Foundation in June of 2014. Her work has been featured on Newsmax, Drudge Report, and the Fox News Channel. Melissa, welcome to An Economy of One. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking a little time. I wanted to talk about two things, maybe three things, if we have time. And the first two are connected. When I saw the articles and the story about the protesters showing up in your lobby, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, I told my producer, I said, oh, you got to call somebody from Heritage. We know a lot of people over there. And just get their thoughts on You know, apparently there's people in Chicago that don't think that uh, the Heritage Foundation has any right to come up with some ideas about government spending and taxes and the economy or anything. What was the reaction in the hallways of protesters showing up in your your lobby? Well, it was a very interesting experience, um, I have to say. There were about 200 um, who both came inside the building and protested inside for about 
15 to 20 minutes, and then they headed outside to the front of the building. Obviously, this group of protesters, we found out that they were affiliated with an organization called People's Action, Mm. but they were obviously very angry, a lot of chanting, um, a lot of shouting. Uh, They were waving signs. and But when we went to ask them exactly what they were protesting, the organization and the protesters refused to speak to the Daily Signal. In fact, we even asked asked, you know, can you direct us to the appropriate media people so that we can speak with them and and have them answer our questions for our readers and for our viewers uh, on Facebook Live on the Daily Signal's Facebook page. Uh And when we told them that we were with the Daily Signal and were very transparent and said that we are affiliated with Heritage, uh, one of the the women uh, there outright said, oh, no, 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 we're not talking to anybody from Heritage. So <laughs> they were very upset, uh, but they really were not willing to speak with us to talk a little bit more about exactly why they were upset and what they were protesting. Now, the, the, some of the columns I read, they, they connected it to protesting uh, essentially what you you published in the uh, Blueprint for Balance. I guess it's the second edition you've done this, second year in a row. It's your ideas, your thoughts on the uh, 2018 federal budget. It's 245 pages long, and I will say I did read it. Uh, How many of the protesters do you think read that? Um, If I were a guessing (laughs) person, and this is purely just my own speculation, I would probably say none. Um, (laughs) Obviously, you know, we we weren't able to find out directly from them exactly which parts. And that was a question that we had was, Mm -hmm. okay, which part of President Trump's budget do you disagree with? And and subsequently, which parts and recommendations in the blueprint for balance do you disagree with? Now, obviously, we didn't get the answers to those two questions, but they were holding some talking about a budget for health, healthy communities or for health communities, a budget for immigration, a budget for the people. And then they were also chanting um, water, not walls. So I would yeah. assume then that they disagreed with any proposals uh, to build a border wall, as we know President Trump has said he wants to do. And my understanding was that the water, not walls reference, which I didn't understand at the beginning, (laughs) was a reference to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Oh, I didn't get that either. But, you know, it's fascinating because I've seen a lot of this kind of stuff. You've seen a lot of it. And, uh, you know, it it seems to me like they're protesting for the joy of protesting and don't really want a dialogue. They don't really want to look at the other side of anything. They don't want to reason through anything. It's just, let's make a lot of noise and get our 15 minutes of fame and be able to go tell our buddies we did this. You know, I mean, it it just doesn't seem like it makes much sense to me. Yeah, and I think the most interesting thing about this, and I think it's important context, is that this was really not a protest of grassroots activists, or this was not um, this was not something organic. This was very much pre-planned. In fact, the organization People's Action was actually in D.C. They had a, about I think over a thousand people um, attending a conference that they organized. Uh, okay that really aimed to protest President Trump, Speaker Ryan, and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. They had participated in several panels, heard from 
Senator Bernie Sanders. And right after they left Heritage, they were heading to a lunch with Congressman Keith Ellison from Minnesota. So this was really something that they had practiced. They had discussed uh, extensively, as we know from other interviews and just from people here inside Heritage who had who had talked with some of the um, event organizers when this was all going on. So this was definitely something that was pre-planned that they had and they were it was not organic in any way. Now, I I don't know how many listeners I have that fall into the progressive category, but if we do, let's irritate them a little bit. Can you give me a few of the summary points of the Heritage 2018 blueprint for balance? What are a few of the, the main bullet points that we can take away from that document? Um, Well, some of the most detailed recommendations really dealt with building America's economy, society, and, of course, building up um, defense. Like you said, it's Mm an over 200-page document, but they certainly call for um, cutting spending. Um, You know, some of the key talking points that uh, the budget document does is we say that it eliminates – Excuse me. It (laughs) increases opportunity and reduces favoritism. Um, We talk about they go through and they basically assess every single federal program that is out there and eliminate any program that is wasteful or just duplicative. Um, It also eliminates any program that heritage and its experts feel would be administered really better by state or local governments instead of under federal control. And, um, you know, really pushed Congress to question whether some of these programs would better serve the American people if they were under the control of the private sector and not the federal government. And there were numerous recommendations um, that were made throughout the whole course of this. And I think one of the most interesting things, particularly as we're talking about the budget in Congress right now, is that it cut taxes by over a trillion dollars in 10 years, and it balanced the budget in seven years. Right. You know, having looked through that and read through the the 200-plus pages, uh, you know, I can see where you guys are a pretty radical, communist, fascist kind of organization, you know? I, I hope you pick up the, the satire in my voice, Melissa. Yes, yes definitely. <laughs> I, I support Heritage wholeheartedly. You guys do great research over there and uh, always meet with your people and, and talk to them at CPAC. And a lot of your colleagues have, have come on the show over the years. So I really appreciate the, the work you guys do over there. Let's switch gears a little bit. And one of your recent columns that I read talked a little bit about Obamacare. And yes. the, the difficulty that Congress is having in getting uh, that repealed. And, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time on on the show talking about that. And I guess what frustrates me is when President Obama was in office, the Republicans had no problem sending him multiple pieces of legislation that repealed the Affordable Care Act. And now that we have President Trump in office and he's likely to sign a repeal, they're having all kinds of difficulty getting him anything. Does that really illustrate the politicization of uh, the Affordable Care Act? I think so. You know, this has certainly been back when President Trump was elected in November and when Republicans maintained control of both the House and the Senate. I think it was really interesting to sort of watch all of this discussion about repealing Obamacare. Um, Lawmakers discussed this. There have been some comments made from members in the last few days that certainly would suggest that the prior votes that they took in the House, there were 
far fewer. I think only one in the Senate, obviously, um, but of Obamacare were more of a, quote, political exercise. Um, but now, obviously, the heat is is and the heat is on uh, for congressional Republicans to pass a bill repealing Obamacare as they've done and at minimum have voted on at least 50 times over the span of the last eight years. So conservatives have said time and time again, as this debate over the health care bill has evolved and gone on, that they feel like it is imperative that they fulfill that promise that they made to voters for seven years now, eight years, uh, seven years now, that they would fully replace, repeal and replace Obamacare. And even though conservatives have now come out in support of the most recent uh, revised plan mm-hmm. from House leadership, they're very explicit about saying that this is not a full repeal of Obamacare, but they're still supporting this plan. Now, you know, in, the, in, in one of your recent columns, you was quoting uh, uh, Seth Chandler from uh, mm-hmm. George Mason University Mercatus Center, which I have a lot of respect for. And we've talked to a lot of their people. And he uh, you quote him as saying it's possible that President Trump didn't appreciate the incredible complexities of health care. One, I guess, does President Trump have to understand the the incredible complexities, given the fact that Congress passed this thing in the first place and they've been working for supposedly working for so many years, building, putting together uh, a type of repeal and replace. Is that the problem? I mean, is it just too darn complex for these people to comprehend uh, or is it too complex in relation to getting reelected next year? Well, I think Republicans are in a really tricky spot, and even some congressional Republicans, especially the ones that I've spoken with, have acknowledged that heading into 2018, they're in a really difficult position. Um, If they don't repeal and replace Obamacare, in fact, Congressman Andy Biggs told me last week that he thinks it's going to be extremely difficult for Republicans to maintain control of the House and the Senate if they don't follow through on on this promise. Now, in terms of President Trump, I think they're... You know, whether or not he should know the intricacies of health policy, I think, um, is not for me to decide. But I will say it, it seems like it has been frustrating as these negotiations with uh, Secretary Price, Vice President Pence, Republican leaders and conservatives and moderate Republicans have continued because it does seem like every time there is a meeting at the White House where President Trump is involved. He sort of moves the goalposts. And I think the most recent example of that is him coming out this weekend and saying that under no circumstances would the bill put forth by um, congressional Republicans take away uh, coverage for consumers with pre-existing conditions. Now, There is some disagreement about whether or not the American Health Care Act and the most recent amendments to the bill would, in fact, do that. Conservatives are very adamant that this legislation with the newest amendments would protect people with pre-existing conditions. They would set up high-risk pools for states that repealed some of Obamacare's regulations, which would basically subsidize coverage. for people with pre-existing conditions. But I think a lot of this comes from a misunderstanding about exactly what the bill does. It's a lot to handle, and and it's a lot to make sense of. And so, like you said, you know, President Trump has been able to negotiate with conservatives today. He was negotiating with 
two moderate Republicans and seem to bring them around to supporting the bill. Now we'll see what happens when they ultimately vote. Well, we'll see. We've been speaking with Melissa Quinn, senior news reporter for The Daily Signal and founding member of The Daily Signal news team joining Heritage Foundation in the last few years. Melissa, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, Once again, I support the the Heritage Foundation. Love the work you guys do out there. We read The Daily Signal. I read your columns. And uh, I hope we get a chance to uh, chat again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This week, over 130 of the S&P 500 companies reported earnings. Now, we've talked about earnings and the stock market and the price of stocks for quite a long time. And it all boils down to earnings. Yes, there are emotions that that move the market. There are events that move the market, no question. But in the end, earnings always have to support the price of the stock. It always reaches an an equilibrium point of a multiple of earnings. So this week, a lot of those earnings came out and you saw what the market did. Stayed kind of flat pretty much all, all week. And we did have some emotional things out there. We had the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee uh, get together and talk and, and not lift interest rates. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, we get questions quite a bit. And people seem to feel really good when a company pays a dividend. Now, this week, Apple reported their earnings, and they had terrific earnings, and they increased their dividend to the point where the headlines read that Apple has now passed Exxon as the number one dividend-paying company. Now, dividends from a company are, for lack of a better term, excess profits that a company pays out to its stockholders. Now, this can both be good and bad. The good part is by owning the stock, you get a dividend check every quarter or twice a year or once a year, whatever, and that's money in your pocket. The bad side of that is that if a company is paying out dividends, that tells me that a company has nothing better to do with their money. Now, Apple's got $260 billion of cash. Of cash. Now, it's not really cash, cash, you know, $100 bills piled up in a vault somewhere in Ireland. It's invested in bonds and and stuff like that, but that's a lot of money. And it's outside this country. If President Trump and Congress lowers the corporate tax. Apple said they would repatriate all that money and invest it in this country in what Tim Cook calls advanced manufacturing. Would I like to see that? Yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see Apple products, more of them made here in the United States, if it makes sense from a business standpoint. 
But more importantly, I'd like to see the tax rate come down. Now, when you think about dividends and companies not doing the best with their money, think of this. The money that Apple pays out in a dividend, that's after-tax dollars for the corporation. In addition, when they pay it as a dividend, that's taxable income to the stockholders. Dividends are essentially double-taxed because Apple cannot deduct the amount of money they pay out in dividends. So when they pay a dividend, that's after-tax money for them. They've already paid the government tax on that money. They give the money to you, and then you have to pay tax on that money. The, the, the federal government, certainly the U.S. Treasury, loves it when companies pay dividends because they get to tax that income twice. What would I rather see? Yeah, if I'm not looking for income from my stocks, I would like to see a corporation reinvest that money to increase the value of the outstanding stock. Either through innovation, research and development, something. Could they buy another company, another business, another sector? Yeah, as long as it's close to the core. I don't... Uh, I, I, I'm not in favor of companies buying things, buying companies that's outside their core expertise. Companies often take excess money and buy back their own shares of stock. When they do this, they retire those shares, and the remaining outstanding shares actually can grow in value in the future because there's fewer of them outstanding. So people look for companies that pay good dividends, companies that buy back their shares, that kind of stuff. You have to take that with a grain of salt. You have to look at it both ways. Because by paying a dividend, they're giving up some growth or growth opportunity. And by buying back shares, it could take a while before the remaining shareholders see any type of increase in their residual value. So when you see a company increasing its dividend, when you see it buying back shares, take it with a grain of salt and go look at the fundamentals of that company and see what they're doing. More should go into your decision than just they pay a high dividend and or they're buying back shares. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. See you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.